It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. And, you know, today I have to save not only the nation, but the world from victims and victimhood. Uh, what we used to have, I was talking to my orthopedic surgeon today. That was super fun. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to have my hip operated on for that torn labrum. That's another podcast for another day. Uh, but he was telling me he doesn't watch news. He had never seen me before, which is great and fine and wonderful. And I wanted to give him a high five. Um, because that means that he, he doesn't naturally hate me, which is great. Uh, but he was saying that he doesn't watch news because he watches sports, because sports is the last remaining meritocracy. So that's what we've all been raised to think that these United States are. You, My daughter's old motto at their elementary school, which I absolutely loved and I internalized to this day, uh, work hard, be kind. And it's almost like if you do those two things— the world is your oyster and so many opportunities and so much joy opens up and heads your way. Uh, that is not necessarily the case when we are operating and being held hostage by victims and a victimhood mentality, which runs counter to a meritocracy where somehow if you are seeking to better your life or create opportunities through hard work, you are an oppressive person because there are if you are successful, that means other people have failed. And um, naturally, your success guarantees that people will be miserable. And that is what follows from a f philosophy that is pushed and designed and projected by victims and victimhood. And it's not a fun place to live. It's a really hard place to try and learn. You know, if you talk to students about this, if you, if you talk to your kids or people in your family um, and, and sort of peel away the layers of the onion and really get out what they're being taught in school, it's about victimhood. And either they are crowned victims or uh, they are shamed as oppressors. And, you know, both those things don't necessarily have to be true. And we've really gotten away from the idea that hard work is beneficial. It benefits not only the hard worker, but the people who prosper alongside that hard work. And I don't just mean enrich themselves and make money because, you know, that can be a natural side effect of hard work, depending on where the work is. Uh, but, you know, when there is satisfaction and joy that goes along with that hard work and kindness, then that is what makes the world a better place. And that ultimately is what saves the world. So there is one man who has put a lot of these ideas and done a really great job at weaving through um, what we're going through as a society right now. And uh, he has written a very interesting book about it, uh, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit and the Path Back to Excellence. And that last part is actually my favorite because it's very easy to wallow in the mire of where we might be and, you know, what we're being subjected to right now. But 
the idea that you still have people who want to engage in that meritocracy, the people who want to work hard, and that is cross-cultural. That is cross-demographic. No matter what you hear about younger people in polls that come out, you know, losing faith in the American dream, there are still many, many people here who want to work hard. They want to do well. They want to be successful. They want something to show for it. And ultimately, they do want to make the world a better place. So that path back to excellence, you know, starts with these conversations and we will get there with younger generations. Nation of Victims is the name of the book. Vivek Ramaswamy joins me now. Vivek, welcome to Kennedy Saves the World. Thank you for having me. Good to talk to you. So this, um, I, I like how your book starts because I was trying to figure out what you studied in college um, as you're writing it because you, you talk almost like a cultural anthropologist um, or an evolutionary biologist um, when you talk about the power of words and how words are almost a form of magic that shape a culture and shape a society and giving people certain labels regardless of its content, actually, you know, in this magical thinking gives people power. When did you come to that realization? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think George Orwell talked about this from a social scientific perspective. I think that it's evolutionarily part of what actually even carves the channels of human thought. I think our ability to have beliefs that distinguish us from animals are in part a product of our language and the capacity that language gives us to be able to have thoughts that we wouldn't have been able to have without language. So, you know, I, I think the long story short is, um, you know, the, the way we describe ourselves or the language we use to describe ourselves affects the way we actually think. And, you know, it's one of the themes that echoes throughout the book is that the more we describe ourselves as victims, the more that we become victims of that very psychology. And I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit puzzled. I was a little puzzled when I started writing the book, why it is that this victimhood malaise arose when it did in our national history. In a certain sense, we haven't encountered incredible hardship in the last 10 to 15 years as a country. And so it was a bit of a mystery that we began to see ourselves, you know, black victims, white victims, Asian victims, liberal victims, conservative victims, whoever it is. I mean, you can pick which camp you want to point your finger to, but we all began to see ourselves as victims at the same point in our national history, ironically, at a time when we actually hadn't encountered nearly as much hardship as we had in many points in our nation's history. And, you know, that's when it clicked for me is that that wasn't a paradox. It was the point. And I think this is part of the case that I make is that our problem wasn't that we didn't encounter that we encountered, I would say, too much hardship in the last decade. It's that we didn't encounter enough of it. And ironically, that's created a cultural response that ensures that hardship is indeed what I believe we will have in the next few years. And then we're going to have a choice, both as individuals and as a people, to say that, are we? do we use that hardship as an occasion to rediscover who we are, the true essence of who we are? Or do we say that hardship is the same thing as victimhood? And if, if we take the latter path, I think that's the beginning of our national decline. If we take the former path, I think that can be the revival and reincarnation of the American experiment itself. And that's what's at stake right now and where we are in our national and cultural history. Yes. And, and in the conversation that we're having now as a libertarian, I look at that and I think of the pandemic. And I think, you know, what my kids and what, you know, kids mostly in public schools went through, um, they were marginalized. They were 
victims of a system. And, you know, my hope is it creates an entire nation of skeptics who push back on the power of government, uh, a government that can take everything away from you, free association, uh, your ability to work and prosper, uh, your ability to learn how you learn. And I see so many parents who have woken up to that conversation. And it's really interesting because as you're talking about these sort of um, invented hardships and, and using words to describe things that aren't necessarily there, words that, you know, as you write about in the book, they, they don't have that content. And so people say things like, you know, this politician is worse than Hitler. Um, you know, the pictures we have of the border agents and their horse reins, they're clearly whipping migrants and you have politicians saying things like that's worse than slavery, uh, which really devalues horrors in our past. You know, people still living witnessed those things and it devalues their experience. But that's what happens when you erase history is you don't learn from it. And then you just invent new things that are really, you know, the foundation is a series of falsehoods and it is destined to collapse. Um, what I really like your book is you weave history throughout it. So obviously, you know, you are a student of history. I like I liked how you quoted uh, Jared Diamond. I thought it was very interesting because I've never thought of Pickett's charge in the Civil War um, as being a moment that, you know, the the that was the fulcrum point and it tipped the South toward victimhood. So how, how did history and in particular that story from the civil war inform you in terms of what we're going through now? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's going to be funny is I did catch myself first when I was writing it, talking about the importance of history and understanding our own history as a people, as a nation, more broadly, even beyond our nation, the importance of studying it. But I found myself saying that enough times to say that actually, why don't I devote some of that airtime where I'm preaching about the importance of history to just actually tell some history in the book. And, and that's what that's sort of what led me to say, okay, I'm going to brush up on my Roman history, brush up on my post-Civil War history, post, brush up on some Reconstruction history. And, and yeah, there were some interesting discoveries in the process. I think that so there, there's two areas where I dive pretty deep in the book. One is post-Civil War, Reconstruction era history, and the other is Roman history. And, you know, one of the things I discovered was the obvious truth that, you know, we sometimes forget where we draw an analogy between the rise and fall of the American experiment, and we analogize it to the rise and fall of Rome. And it actually turns out on inspection that there was no rise and fall of Rome. There were many rises and there were many falls. And as it was for the American experiment as well, there have been many rises and many falls of the American experiment. And I think we we can too easily lose that nuance when we just look at our moment from the present and draw some low resolution analogy to history say, to say that we're in the, the fall of the American experiment and analogize that to the fall of Rome, when in fact history teaches us that the many rises and many falls are actually far more intricate than, uh, than we might think. And I think one of the falls of the American experiment early on in our life as a country was the, was the Civil War. But I think that one of the things that we forget is that the, the, the heroes on both sides of that war were complicated characters, were individuals in and of their own right. I think it's one of, the, one of my goals in that chapter of the book was to tell the story of General Longstreet, who actually is 
often forgotten. And and is the the Cassandra of the Confederacy. Exactly. Exactly right. And, you know, if you and and you sort of go through, I don't I don't think that I don't I have not heard any critical appraisal of the of that chapter in the book. But it is it is largely an untold an untold history of a general who actually cautioned General Lee that this is not what you want to do at Gettysburg. He cautioned him that this was going to this was going to be the beginning of the end. Yet I think Lee's hubris caught up to him. And even General Lee himself admitted it. But General Lee died and Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee became the heroes of the South, whereas the guy who actually advised General Lee in winning every battle they won and the guy who advised him against Gettysburg literally took the fall. In some ways, he was the guy who was still who who survived long enough to be able to take that fall. And, you know, I think the South's victimhood narrative came, you know, revolved around, among other things, the so-called lost cause narrative but around the idea that this guy was responsible for the demise of the South. And it was one of, there's so many lessons in that story. And, you know, that's why it takes a a book to write about it. But one of them in that chapter is that when you wallow in a victimhood narrative, you even get your facts wrong. You even get your own understanding of your own history wrong. General Longstreet was not the guy who was responsible for the South losing at Gettysburg. He may have actually, if they'd been the guy that, if they had listened to him, ironically, this wouldn't have been a good result for our national history, but might have allowed the South to be successful in winning the war. And yet the South blamed him for its loss because it was too busy wallowing in having to blame somebody else for a loss that actually originated from within its own tactics and its own philosophy. And, and so, you know, I think we see that today, you know, could, could flip that. And one of the reasons I like going to history, too, is it takes us out of the, you know, the cultural you know, proximity to the present. Once you start talking about a present day political issue, everyone you know, it loses their ability to think independently. But when you look at it from the distance of history, you're able to see the ways in which that victimhood mentality just, you know, caused you to get it wrong on the facts alone. And that's a big part of why I, I spent most of my time in the past in the book, rather than just meddling in the presence of, of the current issues of the day. No, but I, I really like that because, you know, then... It's not just a superficial journey where you are chin stroking and, you know, just just using buzzwords that that people abhor right now. Um, it's it's much more than that. And that's what I really appreciate. And then, you know, reading about Rome, I like that you point out, you know, the the rise and fall of Rome is not monolithic. And it's the same thing with the history of Egypt. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. and that's why that that, uh, you know, the the course over thousands of years had so many ups and downs and, you know, riches and, you know, drought and ruin and slavery and all of those things that it it, not uh, all those things happened concurrently. It was it was more cyclical. Don't go anywhere. More Kennedy saves the world right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Is there something about the cyclical nature of past dynasties that should give us some measure of hope in the current economic and social climate we're in in this country? Yes, is the unambiguous answer to that question. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's the, uh, you know, it's almost become a trite quote at this point, but, 
Yeah, I cite it early on in the book, as the saying goes, right? You know, hard times create strong men, strong men create easy times, easy times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. It's become trite in part because it is true. It tracks where we are in the wheels of history. In some ways, where we are in American history today is the inevitable product of our national success. You know, success breeds entitlement. Entitlement breeds laziness. Victimhood then fits laziness like a glove because no one actually wants to be lazy. They want to justify their laziness or, or turpitude with morality. And this isn't unique to America. This is true in Rome. This is where Rome was in the in the turn of its of its of its empire, one of the many turns of its empire, at least. You know, where they where the poet Juvenal wrote about bread and circuses. This was back when Septimius Severus was the emperor of Rome. He kept overspending, had to devalue their currency. I'm, I'm picking examples that echo to the current moment we're in today, by the way, but they had rampant inflation. He had to devalue the denarius, the silver and the denarius, their currency. Now, back in his day, the way they would solve for that is they would go plunder another empire in Northern Africa or wherever else to get more silver and more minerals to replenish the currency. And, you know, I think that one of the things that we learn is that today, you know, in Government spending is effectively the bread and identity politics is the circus, but we live in our own moment of bread and circuses, living off the spoils of, I would say, success, our national success in prior eras. But eventually that runs low. You then encounter your own hardship. And one of the two things happen at the end of going through that hardship. Often you see a great culture like that of Rome, a great culture like that of our own country, rediscover the essence of who we are. You know, and at some point the candle burns out and it's the, it's the end of that empire and time for a new one. But I, I'm in the camp where I don't think we're in that last slide of the American experiment. I think that we're in a in a nadir, but, but there's the other half of the nadir ahead of us, which is our climb back to rediscovering who we are. And I think that we're in for a couple of years of hardship. The policies we've adopted from the government on down, the culture we've adopted in the wake of, uh, of our absence of challenges in the last 20 years, no major military conflict on American soil, uh, you know, money raining from the Federal Reserve like mana on high from heaven. Great. We've been skiing on artificial snow for 10 to 15 years since the 2008 financial crisis. Well, we've adopted both a policy set of policies and a cultural attitude that ensures that we're probably going to have some hardship over the next couple of years. But I don't think that's the doom and gloom in the end of the American experiment. I think there's a very good chance that we then use those hard times to create strong men who then go on to create easy times that will then create weak men who then go on to create hard times. That's part of the cycle of our history the history of many other nations. And, and I just think that history is a useful tool to at least be able to see that with clear eyes. I, I made a, an allusion there to, to Septimius Severus, who was you know, overseeing one of those declines of the Roman Empire. And, and we came to know him, you, you, you may recall this from the book, but we came, we came to know him in the last couple of decades as the Black Emperor. And, and one of the things I learned as part of my research for you know brushing up on my Roman history for writing the book was that Actually, the Romans never called him the Black Emperor. It's true that he had black skin. His skin was darker, or at least his skin was darker than that of his, his, many of his fellow predecessors. But they saw his dark skin in the same way that a fellow Roman would see someone with dark eyes or dark hair. It wasn't a particularly fundamental attribute of who he was. But it's in our recent culture, in the last you know, 10, 20 years, where there was a TV special that you know, aired its, its preview saying that the first Black man who walked on British soil, came not as a slave, but as a conqueror. And then we had to celebrate this guy as some kind of hero, when in fact it betrayed our true understanding of the real emperor, who was a disastrous emperor with horrific 
you know, I would say Biden like in many cases, economic policies, overspending, having to devalue the currency, and then had to actually commit some of the greatest atrocities to North African people to be able to plunder the, the resources to replenish the Roman reserves. We failed to see that story in part because we had to tell ourselves the, the today's modern victimhood laden myth that he was the black emperor. He was, uh, you know, to borrow the dark Knight analogy, uh, double entendre there, but the uh, you know he's, he was the emperor we needed, not the actual emperor he was. And so, um, so anyway, it, it's 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 interesting when you go through history, it reveals a lot about the deficiencies of the present, and that's you know one of the things I try to do in the book. Do you do you worry though that you know I I share your optimism that we will remarch to our zenith, uh, but you know, my worry is that kids who are in um, elementary and secondary school, they don't have a clear view of history, that that it is a very jaded and, you know, translucent lens at best. So if they are not being taught facts and logic and reason and rationality, which are things that any successful culture should value, um, Aren't we aren't we doomed to be held hostage by a generation of students who were taught only victimhood? So, so make no mistake, I think we need to, we this is an area of urgent improvement that we need to reform our educational system. I think if the kids entering first grade now graduate from 12th grade before we've fixed it, I think we have a generational problem on our hands and I think that America probably doesn't, the American experiment might not have another generation of, of reserves left in it. So I think that that, I share your views, but are we doomed? I'm not so sure we're doomed. It, it's a little bit, feels a little hubristic to jump from a concern about the status quo to say that we're definitely doomed. Why I say it's hubristic is, you know, sometimes history teaches us that things don't play out exactly the way you might have predicted. You know, I think there's something about being 18 years old that makes you want to rebel against the system that you were inculcated into. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that it's going to be because, you know, we did the right things for the next generation necessarily, but the next generation might have their own way of figuring things out for themselves to realize that the artificial structures of oppression and victimhood that were, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the, the cool intellectual way of challenging the prevailing orthodoxy, right? The idea of this, this you know, post-Hegelian invisible power structure, post, you know, Foucault worldview that says that actually the world is just governed by these invisible power relationships. That was a way of challenging the prevailing orthodoxy. That's now become the new system, right? It effectively um, indoctrinates, I think, the next generation and, and teaches them how they're supposed to think of themselves as victims. I, I don't think that's going to be good, but I can't tell you for sure that it isn't going to play out the other way, Kennedy, where, you know, when those kids come of age, the question is going to be, you know, 18, 19 years old. Well, that is this that is the new system. And so what does rebelling against that system look like? It might actually be our source of deliverance. And so, I, you know, I, th I think history teaches us humility. I think that we can't uh, pretend to know more than we more than we do. I think as a fellow libertarian, you might recall a, a favorite quote from Friedrich von Hayek. Uh, we we can't no more than the government can have a fatal conceit. Uh, we can't suffer from a fatal conceit as individuals either to know exactly how this is going to play out. Okay, I'm so glad you brought up fatal part. conceit because I I quote that all the time talking about the Fed, because you know That's exactly right. Yes, part of that exactly application right. is 
they think they can unring the bell. They think they've got so much of this under control that all they have to do is make adjustments and do things that are moderately different. And they will put the horse back in the barn. That is the fatal conceit. And, you know, in many ways, they have lost control over this economy. But I like that you bring up Foucault because I actually like postmodernism. And, you know, I I consider myself to be um, inspired by Plato and a moral objectivist um, in many ways, a moral realist. Uh, And I don't think postmodernism is the worst thing in the world, but I do. I love the idea that rebellion and creativity uh, take form in ways that cannot be predicted. And, and that, that is such a beautiful thing. And, and that is something that rebellion and that urgency is something that every generation owns. And you're absolutely right about that. We cannot assume that we know the outcome when this generation is fully formed and operational uh, because they may do it in a totally different way that if, if you have a positive view of human nature, then the pendulum will swing toward real progress and in individualism. Amen. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's, that's where I'm at on this is that we can do our best, do our part, point out what we see as the problems, offer an affirmative vision of what can, what can fill the void. But, uh, but, you know, we can't, uh, we can't, whether it's doom and gloom or false optimism, in either case, we can't be falsely hubristic or conceitful thinking that we're not, we're going to know exactly how this is going to play out. History will teach us time and again that we, we certainly, we almost certainly don't, but what we can do is, is at least speak with candor, speak with honesty, you know, conversations like this one, hopefully at least uh, you know, inform what direction that dialogue goes for the next generation. So we'll see. All right. I have one last very important question for you, Vivek. What okay. are your what are your favorite fast food fries? Ah, <laughs> I like Arby's uh, curly fries. Excellent answer. Didn't see that one coming. Uh, beautif- beautifully like said. Spice on them. So if In and Out, if In and Out had Five Guys fries, that would be the perfect fast food meal. You're entitled to your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> oh, opinion. oh, Vivek, this has free been fantastic. <laughs> thank God it's so. a, thank God it's a free country. <laughs> Nation of Victims. It's a great book. So if you love history and love looking at things um, through the prism of the past that will inform the future, this is a wonderful book. Vivek Ramaswamy. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. That was a very interesting conversation, my friend. Loved it, as always. We'll see you in person next time. You know it. This has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy. For more podcasts from my friends at Fox, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Oh, go ahead and leave me a review while you're there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You've been listening to Kennedy Saves the World on the Fox News Podcast Network. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.